Well, that was a great time. Um, thank you all for participating in that. I love when we do that, and I love us getting to take time as we're in the season and we're talking about discipleship to get to gather together as a church family and pray about that together. Because if you were here last week, you know that this week we're in the second week of a six-week focus where we're talking about what we believe God is doing in our church family when it comes to the whole subject of discipleship. And that means several things. One of the things that it means is that during every day of these six weeks, we're encouraging every one of us to pray a very simple prayer. And that simple prayer is just, Father, how are you calling me to participate in the discipleship project? Which just means, how are you calling me to be a part of Jesus' discipleship in the lives of my brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of this church family? For, for some of us, that's going to mean that there's going to be somebody that we're going to say, you know what, I, I see somebody that I want them to come alongside me. I, I want to sort of come under their wing and learn from them and grow from them. So I'm going to, I'm going to go and, and talk to them about getting together regularly. And for some of us, it might mean the other side where you say, there's somebody that God has put on my heart that I want to come alongside them and I want to help shepherd them closer to Jesus. And then for others of us, it's, it's going to be more of a peer relationship where it's, it's going to be something where you say, we're, we're both looking to follow Jesus. We both want to do it more passionately. We're going to partner together and we're, we're going to get together in these small groups. We're going to together read through Design for Discipleship or Discipleship Essentials. And we're really going to look to take our relationship with God out of maintenance mode and be actively growing, passionately following Jesus in our lives. That's a big part of what we are passionate about during this period of time. I mean, in fact, one of the other things that we're encouraging everybody to do for these six weeks is that each week we're dropping a new episode of our Christian Contrast podcast. And the episode that's going up uh, this week is one where I get to talk with Allie Sweeney, who a lot of you know and is a big part of the church here. And she just talks example after example about in her life about times where others have come alongside her to help shepherd her closer to Jesus. And then also how she's seen God work through her as she's answered the call to come alongside others. And so if you're listening to this and you're saying, all right, this, this discipleship thing, it still seems really confusing and nebulous and I can't figure it out, listen to these podcast episodes and you'll start to get a sense of, all right, the, the mystery is being taken out of it. A little bit of the scary is being taken out. It is a step of faith, but it's not a step of faith that's impossible. And it's a step of faith that's very rewarding. And so as we get ready for week two of the Discipleship Project, we're going to this morning go through what is almost certainly the most upsetting and unsettling passage in the Bible about discipleship. It's in Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there now. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to be up here on the screen as I read them in a moment. We're going to read through Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, some words of Jesus and some of the most unsettling words that Jesus ever spoke. So I'm going to start in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. 
Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do, do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is God's word. And one of the things that this passage, this unsettling passage underscores, is the cost of discipleship. And in a way, it just underscores a reality of life. And the reality of life that, that it underscores is that life is made up of a series of trade-offs. Life is made up of a series of choices where we're making a trade-off and we're saying, all right, in this particular choice, at this time, because of the stakes and because of how I'm feeling right now, I'm going to make this choice because I believe what I gain from the choice is greater than what I lose from the choice. Of course, this last week was September 11th, and so we remembered back to 2001 and to the horrible terrorist attack. And uh, whenever I think of that, I think about how our world is different because of what happened that day. And one of the most obvious ways that our world is different is the experience that we all have at airports. The experience at airports has changed dramatically since September 11th. And there will be times that I'll be at an airport and I'll be in line and all the extra security and all the extra hoops that we have to jump through and people will start kind of grumbling and complaining and maybe even I'm sort of grumbling and complaining about how long it's taking. And as soon as I start to think about the complaining, immediately what comes to my mind is, what is the trade-off here? Because the trade-off here is something between extra safety and security to extra inconvenience for our lives and longer lines. And whenever that comes to mind, I stop complaining. Because I say, for me personally, I will take the longer lines and take that trade-off for the extra security. Knowing there might even be some of you here that you'd say, you know what, I'd actually be on the other side of it. I'd rather have more freedom, less hoops to jump through, less searches. I'd rather trade that even knowing that the result of that would be that there would be less security. But in either case, what we're doing is we're recognizing there's a trade-off. You can't have both. And what we choose is the thing that in that moment, we believe makes us gain more than we lose. And if you start to think about life, you'll realize this is how we go through life. We're constantly evaluating the trade-offs. We're looking at the money we have and we're saying, all right, am I willing to take the trade-off of using this money for this meal? Am I willing to trade this spare time that I have right now for this particular show on Netflix that I kind of want to watch? Am I willing to trade that extra sleep that I could get so I could get up early and spend some time in prayer and spend some time in the Scripture? Am I willing to trade the independence that comes along with singleness for some of the limitations that come along with marriage? All through our lives, we're making choices. And the reason we land where we do is because we've decided what we gain from our choice is greater than what we lose from it. But it becomes harder to do trade-offs when they become more expensive. 
when the cost gets higher. It's easy to spend money on $2 Taco Tuesday than it is for an expensive meal. And as we talk about the cost of discipleship, the the thing that we have to reckon with is Jesus makes it absolutely clear that being a disciple of Jesus is expensive. The cost is high, which throughout this morning is going to cause us to wrestle with that lingering question, if the cost is so high, is it worth it? If I'm going to be losing a lot by following Jesus, what is it that I'm going to be gaining that outshines what I'll lose? And that's eventually where we're going to get through this passage. But we have a couple steps to go through, and and we're really going to break this into two sections. There's two things we learn about what discipleship of Jesus requires. And the first one is in verses 25 through 27. The first thing that we learn is that discipleship requires devotion. So verse 25 gives us a little bit of an introduction before we get to the hard words of Jesus. It just says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said. So this is the introduction for all of the things that he is about to say. And just as a starting point, we could recognize at this point, things seem to be going pretty well for Jesus. Because it doesn't just say in verse 25, a few people were following Jesus. Who was following Jesus? Large crowds. This is the dream. This is success. Jesus is a traveling preacher. He's a traveling rabbi. He's going around in Israel. He has large crowds following him. You might think at this point, Jesus would turn to the crowds and say, thank you. This is what I always wanted. But Jesus doesn't see the large crowds as necessarily meaning that his mission is being successful. The things he's about to say are undoubtedly about to thin the herd. And here's something else to take in. We could look at these hard words of Jesus as he talks about the deep cost of discipleship, and we could say, all right, what Jesus is really saying is he's getting a bunch of Christians together, and he's telling these Christians, all right, here's the deal. You're already in, you're already saved, you're already going to heaven, you're already part of the family. But if you want elite status, if you want to join the platinum club amongst Christians, here's what it's going to cost you. But that's not what's going on at all. He is speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to people who are either going to decide to be a disciple or not to be a disciple. And to be a disciple of Jesus simply means to be a Christian. Jesus isn't saying, here's the cost of elite status. Jesus is saying, here's the cost of being a Christian. That is the outline for what he's about to say. And of course, in verses 26 and 27, they're very disturbing words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my my disciple. And by the way, who else carried his own cross? Yeah, the man speaking these words carried his own cross to his execution. Jesus is saying, following me could very well lead to your death, so get ready for it. But there's, of course, one word in these verses that stands out and makes them extremely difficult. What's that one word? Hate. What in the world is going on with the word hate? We could say on a surface level, if you had none of the rest of the Bible and you were just reading this in English, well, you'd say, well, here's what Jesus wants from the life. He wants a bunch of people following him who are cruel and intolerant and indifferent to the members of their own family. 
And we can at least start by saying there's a reason why we should pause at that understanding of what Jesus is saying. It would go against everything else that he said. Jesus said to his disciples, here's how everybody's going to know that you belong to me. Here's how everybody's going to know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. In fact, Jesus not only told people to love their family members, he told people to love their enemies. So when we read this, this should at least give us pause to say, all right, it's, it's probably not what it seems to be on the surface because of these other things that Jesus said. But it's clearly a hard saying. Jesus is clearly trying to get our attention here. By the way, did Jesus get your attention here? Now that, that's a way to make a stop and say, whoa, wait a minute, I, I got to pay attention. Hate? Now here's a couple things that help us process through to try to get to the heart of what Jesus is saying. Um, one of them is that in the book of Matthew, there's a passage that's parallel to this. It's Matthew 10, verse 37, if you want to look it up later. And Jesus says basically the same thing, but he says it in a way that's easier for us to swallow. He says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Then he parallels it with the same sorts of things. Anybody who loves brother or sister more than me is not worthy of me. And even though it's not like that's an easy thing to hear, but at the very least, we can kind of say, all right, I understand that. Why didn't Jesus say that here? Seems like that's a much more user-friendly way to say it. Jesus uses the word hate. And again, there's a couple reasons why we can understand this. One is that the word hate, the word that's translated hate here, doesn't necessarily have all the implications that come into our minds when we hear the English word hate. Because when we hear that, we think of sort of active antagonism. Whereas part of what's bound up in the Greek word that's translated here as hate has to do with the idea of choice and that when you make a choice, when you make a trade-off, you're receiving one thing and you're rejecting another thing. In fact, if you have an open Bible, if you were to turn just probably one page and look at Luke chapter 16, verse 13, you'd hear Jesus saying, no one can serve two masters. And the reason you can't serve two masters is you're going to be devoted to the one and you're going to hate the other. Which, again, for many of us, we'd say, no, you're not. You're going to be devoted to one and you're going to prefer it in favor over the other. You don't have to hate the other one, but that leads us to say, well, that seems to be a part of what Jesus is saying. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means that you're going to be so devoted to him that every time he comes into conflict with father or mother, wife or children, brothers or sisters, you're choosing Jesus. And that's going to lead to sometimes where you have to reject other people or at least do something that causes them to feel deeply rejected. My, um, I, I'm half Jewish because my dad is, is full Jewish by ethnicity. And uh, while he grew up in a mostly secular Jewish family, when he was a late teenage, in his late teenage years and he became a Christian, it caused a stir. It caused some issues. And basically among every member of the family, it caused at least some discomfort over the idea that he was now a Christian. And around some members of the extended family, it caused more than a little bit of unsettling. It caused them to disown him as a member of the family. My dad, when he became a Christian, didn't say, because I'm following Jesus, I reject my family. But by following Jesus, he ended up being rejected by some of his family. And while I don't know if this ever happened, 
it wouldn't be surprising if certain members of the family even said, because of my dad's decision, why are you doing this to us? Do you hate us? Sometimes when you choose Jesus over someone else, even though you're not looking to reject them, it ends up coming across as if it's hate. There are lots of you who have been in situations before where you have a friend or you have a family member and and they're doing something that you just know, this is going to cause a conflict. I'm I'm not craving conflict. I'm not craving a difficult conversation with them, but it's going to cause a problem between us because you have somebody that you love and they're a believer and they're getting married to an unbeliever and you're just like, oh gosh, when we talk about this, this is going to be a problem. They're not going to like what I have to say about this. Or you have a friend and they're about to divorce their husband or divorce their wife, not for biblical reasons. And you're thinking, oh gosh, when we talk about this, this is going to cause a conflict. And when you talk about it and you tell them the truth, they might say, why would you say that to me? Do you hate me? And you'd want to say, no, I don't hate you, but you can understand what's going on. What they're recognizing is there's something more important to you that's causing you to be willing to hurt me. Jesus is not saying, if you become a Christian, you're going to abandon your family. But what he is saying is, if you become a Christian, you are going to be willing to be abandoned by your family if it's between Jesus and them. We have to be willing to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. And by the way, I I know this could start to sound like, this kind of sounds like work salvation. I thought we were saved by grace. I thought we were saved by faith. This sounds like Jesus is saying, you got to go do a bunch of things and jump through a bunch of hoops in order to become a Christian. And that's not really what Jesus is saying. Um, It it would be sort of like if we looked at the whole analogy of the narrow gate. Jesus says, you got to enter through the narrow gate. Um, and, And our perception is that Jesus is saying, hey, if you show up at the narrow gate and you haven't already left all these things behind, I might not let you through. But what's actually going on is this. We're showing up at the narrow gate with everything we have. We've got all of our bags with us. We've packed every single, in fact, we're wearing every single item of clothing just because we don't want to leave everything behind. We've got it all on. We've got all of our friends with us. We've got our jobs with us, every single possession we have. And Jesus isn't saying, no, 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 I won't let you through. Jesus is saying, you won't fit. You're not going to be capable of being a disciple of Jesus in the devoted way that you will need to be unless you're willing to leave everything behind to follow him. And this, again, at least teases off the question, this is expensive. This is a big cost. What in the world am I gaining that could possibly be more than all of that? And that's what we're going to be driving towards in the next section. Because Jesus says discipleship requires devotion. And what he's going to say in the next section is that discipleship also requires deliberation. I want you to think about this. In fact, let me just say right now before we even go on. um, There's some of you in here this morning that you're not Christians. And if that's the case, I'm glad that you're here because here's what you get right now. You do not get a message from Jesus that says, just don't think about it, become a Christian. Jesus is actually going to tell you if you're not a Christian, think carefully about this before you jump on board. Deliberate. Think about this. And for those of us who are Christians, this is one of the other powerful things that we get to come back face to face with saying, all right, if I'm at a point right now that I'm a Christian, but I'm kind of lukewarm, I'm trying to play it safe, that Jesus is going to tell all of us, if you really want the deep benefits, the life-changing benefits that come from following Jesus, it's going to cost you. So consider the cost 
beforehand. Jesus is not blind to what He's asking. He's going to tell us, think about it before you jump on. And He does that through two parables. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. And it's not totally clear. This could be a tower that's used for grain. This could be a tower that's used for defense in some way. But He says, all right, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And the point of the parable is very simple. He's saying, sit down, deliberate about the cost before you decide you're in. And he gives almost the same analogy in the second parable. The second parable, he says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And you might read this on the surface and say, probably not, 10,000, 20,000? But maybe he's defending, maybe he knows he's in an elevated position and he can say, all right, there's a chance I can hold him off. But the point of Jesus is saying he's going to think about it beforehand because, verse 32, if he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. And here, some commentators pointed out that while the two parables are essentially the same, They're both given essentially the same message. They're saying, think about it before you sign on. Think about the cost of discipleship before you decide to become a disciple of Jesus. But the thing that's a little bit different about the second one is that with the tower parable, the guy could just decide not to build a tower. He could just say, it costs too much, I'm just not going to build a tower. With the king, he's got to make a decision one way or the other. He's got to either ask for peace or he's got to go out and fight. A decision is being pressed upon him. And there's an element of that for all of us with Jesus. We don't get to stay neutral about him. We have to make a choice. And Jesus summarizes the entire thing that he said in this passage in verse 33 by saying, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. He says, think about the cost, deliberate about the cost, because the cost is steep. And there's a part of us probably that reads these verses and we say, is Jesus trying to talk people out of this? Jesus gathered with the crowds and they're like, Jesus, we love you, we're in. And he's like, no, I'm going to talk you out of it. Um, That's not what he's doing, but there's an element of that that is going on. It's a little bit like sometimes those of us who are pastors here sometimes get to meet with couples who are about to get married or or, who are thinking about engagement. And there are times that if you overheard the conversations we had with engaged couples, you would say, is he trying to talk them out of getting married? Because we have hard conversations about it. We believe marriage is a very good gift of God. We're very much in favor of people getting married. But we're very much in favor of people getting married with their eyes wide open about it. So we have conversations and we say, all right, I know right now you're looking at her and you can't imagine you ever being upset with her. I promise you will be. And I know you're looking at him as if he can do no wrong. Believe me, he can and he will. There will be times in your marriage where you will absolutely want out. There will be times in your marriage where divorce and separation will seem much more appealing than being together. And you can listen to this and say, what are you doing? Are you trying to make them not get married? No, we want them to get married. 
What we don't want is five years down the line for somebody to say, I thought I was always going to feel this way. I thought we were never going to face trials. I thought if you were really in love, it was supposed to be easy. So I'm out. We want anybody getting married to go into it with eyes wide open to know there are going to be times where the only thing keeping you together is pure commitment to Jesus and to one another. And that's going to pay off. But if you don't know that those times are coming, you're going to jump ship much earlier. And Jesus is saying, you know, there are going to be times where you're just going to be staggered by what you have lost in following me. So think it through beforehand. And even let's just take a moment right now. Let's think it through as a group. Think about what you've lost by following Jesus. I know we're in the U.S., and so persecution isn't nearly as significant as it is in lots of other parts of the world. But if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you've lost some things. You've probably lost some friends. And it may not have come up in just an absolutely knockout, knockdown, dragout. That's right, knockdown, dragout. Yeah. It may not have come out in a very overt conflict. It may have just been that you sort of changed. And your friend said, you know what? We used to go out and we used to drink and we used to talk and we used to joke. And you don't do that anymore. It's different hanging out with you now. In fact, when you're around, we kind of feel bad about ourselves because of the way that you behave. (laughs) We're not super excited to hang out with you anymore. And the friendship just faded away. It was a loss. It was something you were willing to lose, but it was a loss nonetheless. And for other times, it's been much more overt where you have had that hard conversation with somebody. You've told them the gospel truth about how destructive their actions were, and they ended up wanting nothing more to do with you. Some of you have lost in other ways. Some of you have been passed over for advancement in your companies or in your career because you were unwilling to do unethical things that Jesus would not call you to do. And so you sort of got left behind and you lost your job or you just ended up having a glass ceiling and couldn't go any higher because of it. Some of us have lost money. In fact, really, if we're following Jesus, all of us should have less money than we would if we weren't following Jesus because Jesus calls us to generosity. And so there are certain things about your standard of living where you look at it and you say, oh gosh, we, we could have had that giant TV. We could have had that boat. We could have had that vacation. We could have had some of these other things, but instead we were generous for the work that God is doing around the world. You've lost things because of following Jesus. And there's other things that you have to live with the reality that you may lose. Remember, there was a conversation, I wasn't in on the conversation, but, but somebody related it to me. This was back when I was in Oregon, where there was a guy who was considering becoming a Christian, and he was wrestling with all of the things. And the question that he asked one of our pastors as he was wrestling with it is he said, if I become a Christian, do I have to give up my guns? <laughs> and the interesting thing that came to my mind is that there, there's a part of us that, that could say, well, well no, that, that's not something. Jesus doesn't say you can't have a gun if you become a Christian, or you can't work this job if you become a Christian, or you can't be married if you become a Christian. But as I was thinking about it, I'm like, you know what the right answer to that question is for the guy that says, do I have to give up my guns if I'm going to follow Jesus? The right answer is maybe. You certainly have to be ready to. We don't know what Jesus is going to do. We don't know what he's going to call you to do. If you're looking at this right now and you're saying, all right, I I want to follow Jesus, but I just need to make sure I can still be married. I, I can still get married someday if I follow Jesus. The answer is maybe, maybe not. We give up everything to follow Jesus. We hold on to nothing. The cost is steep. And so Jesus says, think it through before you do it. And here's where we have to come to the other side of it. If the cost is this steep, 
the payoff better be grand. (laughs) There better be something compelling, because if I'm going to make that decision, I have to be convinced that what I'm gaining is greater than what I'm losing. And Jesus actually tells us this exact thing in another parable. You don't have to turn there right now, but in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a lot of parables, and one of them that he tells is in just one verse. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, and it's often called the parable of the hidden treasure. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's it. That's the whole parable. The guy was stumbling across in a field, found a treasure there, went and covered it back up, just kind of ignored the sketchiness of what's going on here, covers it back up and hides it, and he realizes he is going to have to use every resource he has in order to buy the field that the treasure is on. But he knows this is a good bet because that treasure is worth more than everything he owns. So he goes back and gets out every article of clothing, even his favorite stuff. Sells every one of his possessions. Gets rid of his way of transportation. Gets rid of everything he owns. Sells his home and takes all the money. And here's the deal. You hear all that? And what you would expect Jesus to say is, in his melancholy... He sold all he had so he could buy this field. That's not what Jesus says at all. In his joy, he sold everything he had because he knew what he was gaining was much more than what he was losing. Jesus says, I know the cost is high. I know this is steep. I know you're going to end up in a situation where you're going to lose friends. I know you're going to end up with less money than you would have if you were just doing whatever you wanted with it. I know you're going to end up in uncomfortable situations. I know you're going to be let out of your comfort zone. You're going to lose things if you follow me. The apostles certainly lost a lot of things by following Jesus. But Jesus says, what you gain utterly outshines what you lose. And so do it in your joy. And you know what, frankly, if if the only thing that we gained was eternal life, that would be worth the trade. That would be worth the trade-off if we just said, all right, there's no benefits that we get in the here and now, but when we die, we go to heaven. When we die, we're reconciled to God. All of that works out. Even that alone would be worth the trade. Just a couple weeks ago, I was with somebody who was in, um, in his last days and knew he was in his last days. And it was powerful spending time with them. Anytime you spend time with someone, we, we know at the back of our heads, death is lurking for all of us. But sometimes you're in a situation where you know it's imminent. And spending time with a man who knows death is imminent, knows there's a whole bunch of things he's never going to do again. And at the same time is staring down death with hope that it's not the end. There's no amount of money that's worth that. There's no amount of possessions. There's no friend that you've lost along the way who is worth staring down the barrel of death and knowing that death doesn't get the final word, but that just as Jesus was raised from the the dead, one day you will be raised from the dead. There's no amount of money that compares to that hope. And it's not even just hope for the future. Because we know right now God is dwelling with us through his spirit. Right now we are sons and daughters of God. God is with us through Jesus Christ and through his spirit. And Phil was talking earlier about how, man, there are times for for the most mature Christian, 
in our church, there are times where it is just lonely. There are times where you feel alone because you're staring down the idea that you got to do something that you're really afraid to do and you feel like nobody understands or you're just going through a dark period of your life and you're not sure anybody really gets the depths of what you're going through. Life, even if you're, man, I, I have a great wife and I have kids that I love desperately. There are still times where it feels lonely. And there's a lie from the enemy that tries to make us think that during those times we are utterly alone. And for me, the thing that most gets me through those times is knowing that I am not facing those things without the God who created me walking right alongside me. That is worth more than any amount of money. That is worth more than any friend that I've lost along the way. That is worth more than any comfort I've given up to follow Jesus. He is with us in the future. He is with us now. What we gain is worth infinitely more than what we sacrifice in order to follow Jesus. Jesus says count the cost, but the reason he feels confident telling us to count the cost is that he knows at the end of the day, this is a good trade-off and we're wise to make this trade-off. And you know, the trade-off that we make not only benefits us, it benefits other people as well. I just said earlier, the thing that gets me through the hard times, first and foremost, is knowing that base reality, God is with me. And the other thing that most often gets me through those times is when I have a brother or sister in Christ during those dark times remind me, God is with you. There will be times when following Jesus doesn't seem like it's worth it. There are going to be times where it seems like a bad bet or a bad trade-off. But man, if you have brothers and sisters in Christ around you, this is why we're talking about all this discipleship stuff. If you have other people partnering with you, you have other brothers and sisters who have gone through the same trials, the same difficulties, the same valley of the shadow of death, and they're able to say to you, don't abandon Jesus. The walk is worth it. We need each other for that. Because the way that we walk with Jesus not only affects us, it affects others as well. It's this summer I read, one of the books that I read was a biography of Martin Luther. And a lot of you probably know who he is. He was the, the core Protestant reformer in the, 15, uh, in the 1500s that led to Catholicism uh, being split and us having churches like ours, of largely having the Bible in our own language over making sure that the gospel of Jesus, that we are saved by grace and not by what we've done, is held strong. And I knew the basics of Martin Luther's story and that, that he was a monk who was reading the scriptures and wrestling with what he saw to be an angry and antagonistic God and ended up encountering through the scriptures the God who pours out his grace on men and women. And when this happened, it led to Martin Luther being at odds with the entire powerful Roman Catholic Church. I knew all that, but the thing that I got to read about in the biography was just how many times along the way Martin Luther could have made his life way easier by pulling back and saying, I made a mistake. By pulling back and recanting and just going back to the way that things were. His life was incredibly difficult because of what he did. And all along the way, men and women were saying to him, if you just do this, your life will become easier. And thank God that he didn't recant. Thank God that he stayed strong. Thank God that somewhere in there he knew that what he was losing was not as great as what he was gaining. 
because he gained not only for himself, and he gained not only for the men and women who were around him then, he gained for all of us who are here today. Who's to say what God is going to do through you faithfully walking with him and paying the price of discipleship today? Who's to say what he's going to do decades and centuries down the line through that faithfulness? And what, what we're going to do now is we're going to get ready for our response time. And here's what I want to say. Response time is a time that we take at the end of the services where we have the band come out and lead us in a final song, where we have pastors and elders and members of the prayer team come to both sides of the stage so that during the song, at any point, whatever's going on, you can just get up from your seat and go and receive prayer with one of the people who's up here. But I want to say a couple things about the... the, um, the response time. And the first thing that I want to say is this. It would be easy to look at what we're doing in response time and say, the people who are responding are the people who go up and get prayer. But what I want you to know is the response time is for all of us. We are all responding to the scriptures. We are all responding to the gospel. We are all responding to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst right now. So we are all responding during this time. If that response is through singing, through praying, through drawing near in our hearts, we're all responding. But let me also say, there may be some specific ways that God will invite you to respond, to respond during this time by coming forward for, for a variety of reasons. Um, one reason may just be this. You may be a Christian and that through this message, what you've come face to face with is there have been some costs that Jesus has been leading you into that you previously have been unwilling to pay. You've been stalled in your relationship with God because you said, I'm not willing to follow Jesus there. And now is the time to go pray with a brother or sister in Christ, to borrow their courage, to say aloud what you know that God is calling you to do so that you can remember that others have walked this path before and that God is with you as you face this down. That may be why you come forward for prayer. Another reason why you may come forward for prayer is because you're not a believer in Jesus. You've heard about the cost. You've heard about the benefits and you're ready to respond. You're saying today is the day. Today is the day for me to recognize that what I gain, the eternal life, the reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of my sins, what I gain through giving my life to Jesus and becoming his disciple is more than I would ever lose from it. So I'm ready to respond by faith. And if you're ready to respond by faith, I want to invite you at some point during the song, just come forward. The people who are, uh, who are up here will be over the moon to be able to pray with you and pray through that with you. But let me just give a third thing. Some of you may be called to come forward today during the, during the response time for something that has nothing to do with anything that I've talked about today. You just have a burden. You just have something that you need to pray with with a brother or sister about. If that's you, don't let anything stop you from responding to the Lord during this time. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand, and I'm going to pray for us as we get ready to enter into this time. Father God, thank you so much for the grace that you pour out. Thank you so much that we even have the option of being disciples of the King, of belonging to you. Father, it is expensive, and there are times where the cost is daunting. But I pray that you remind us during this time that the benefits that you bring, the treasures that you pour out to us are of infinitely greater value than anything that we may lose along the way. I pray that you move in the hearts of those who are ready to respond now to the gospel. I pray that you move in the hearts of any right now 
who are ready to respond to something that you're calling them to do that's going to be difficult. Father, move in our midst and use one another to build one another up. We pray this in the name of our Savior and King Jesus. Amen.